You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. Well, I'm John Baxter. I'm an elder at One Hope, and actually I'm filling in as a bit of an interim pastor for a few months as we're making some transitions at One Hope. Well, this this morning we're going to continue to look at the book of Nehemiah, which I don't know about you, but I think it's really been apropos for where we are. I was sort of surprised even just how it's been tracking on uh, to where we are. It's the, the theme we have been looking at is how God restores. He was, of course, restoring the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem, that were destroyed by the, by the Babylonians in 586. And now it's 455 BC, quite a while ways later, and Nehemiah has returned from the Persian king, Persia conquered Babylon, because the walls of Jerusalem were still destroyed and the city was destitute in danger and in disgrace. That was a good alliteration there, those three Ds. I like that. But that's the way they were. And so God is restoring the walls and the protection of the people of Jerusalem through uh, Nehemiah. And we've been been looking at that, but we've also maintained that this book is not just about walls, but it's also about restoring the people and their hearts. That in the end, it was far more important that the people of Jerusalem's hearts were restored than the walls. If they had just restored the walls, but their hearts still wandered from God, then disaster would easily come again. And so now we arrive at verse, or excuse me, chapter 6. And when I was reading chapter 6, this is actually the question that came to my mind. Why isn't this easier? <laughs> why, why is this task of rebuilding the walls seem so difficult? And then just stepping back from that, I thought so many times in my life, I've said to myself, why, why isn't this easier? Why is this so hard? Why is this thing I'm doing difficult? And you know when that's, that feels the strongest is when you're trying to do something good. You're actually trying to help people or do something positive, and just, it just seems difficult. I don't know about you parents. If you don't have kids or your kids are young, get ready for that. You're going to be trying to do something good, and you're going to be saying, why isn't this easier? Why do they make it so difficult? I doubt there's anyone in this this auditorium who hasn't had that feeling at some time in your life. And it's probably a recurring feeling because we have this desire that things would go smoothly. And when we have that expectation, particularly we're trying to do something good, like Nehemiah is trying to build the walls, that's a good thing. And he just runs into difficulty. If we have that expectation that when I'm doing good things, God's going to make it easy for me, I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be disappointed and possibly discouraged. My my hands are going to be weakened for whatever I do. And there's a possibility of giving up. So if that really is a difficulty in life, and I think we've all experienced it, an expectation that things should be going well, particularly if I'm doing good, and there's just difficulty, what's the wisdom that Nehemiah can give us? Now, I, I don't think it's too hard for us to easily map this on to where we are. Here we are trying to do good. We're, we're, we're trying to see an outpost of the kingdom thrive and flourish in one hope. And I think we would all admit over the last year or more, it hasn't been easy. I mean, the very fact that we're sitting in this room instead of 
at the YMCA is an indication that things haven't gone as smoothly as we would hope. So is there wisdom from this chapter in Nehemiah about where we are, not just personally, but also as a church family? And I wouldn't bring that up if I didn't think there was. So we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 6. And the first thing we're going to look at in the next slide, if it comes, there it is, is that the first thing we notice that there's continuing opposition to the building of the wall from without, from outside of Nehemiah's group, outside of the Jews who were there in Jerusalem. And you can read with me in verse 1 of chapter 6, when the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and that not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono, and it was some miles away from Jerusalem, so it was a good trip. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Now, this is opposition from the outside. Sanballat, that's actually a, a Babylonian name. It means sin. Uh, uh, the moon god, you know, is great. And we see that uh, Tobiah is an Ammonite name. This is a, a, one of the nations that the Israelites had to conquer as they were moving into the promised lands. And Geshem, we're told, simply is an Arab. So these are people that that the Babylonians and the Assyrians and others had moved into the lands uh, that when they depopulated them, when they took the people of Israel, the Jewish people in exile, they had replaced them with, with people from other countries, from all around the Middle East. And these people were no friends of, of the Jews. Actually, they didn't want them to prosper at all. So they were enemies, and there's this opposition from without. And so they're scheming. Come, leave the work. Come down to us, meet us miles away from Jerusalem. Most likely that they would experience some sort of, of harm. But the opposition continues. It, it intensifies. We see in verse 5, then the fifth time, the one thing about these guys is they were persistent, weren't they? You'd think, well, we tried four times. It didn't work. We should give up. They did not. Sanballat said his aid to me with the same message. In his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem, that's that Arab, says that it is true. You and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, that's the king of Persia. So come, let us meet together. And Nehemiah says, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So that, I said before, when, when we face opposition and we're, we're not expecting it and we get discouraged, it, it, it weakens our resolve. So they're thinking, boy, if we, if we apply enough opposition to Nehemiah, we make things difficult enough, or particularly if we could get rid of him somehow, 
or that he would be scared that we're going to report that he's rebelling against the king and that he would stop the work, that, that, that their hands would grow weak. They would stop the work. So you look at Nehemiah's prayer. That he prays for the exact opposite. He says, I prayed. He says, God, now strengthen my hands. This was a false charge of rebellion, and it intensifies the opposition because uh, if that report does get back to the king and the king of Persia believes it, um, Nehemiah won't keep his head for long on his shoulders. It was about the worst thing that could be reported back to the king. So this is an intensification of the difficulty. And what's his response? What's Nehemiah's response? Let's look at that next slide. Well, first of all, Nehemiah, we see, was wise. We've talked a bit about that before. But it reminds me when Jesus was calling the first disciples and he was sending them out on their task. You remember what he said to them in Matthew 10? He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So the first response is that, that Nehemiah needs to be wise. He has a, he's, he's older. He's served the king. He does have a lot of experience and wisdom. We need leaders like that. But he's wise, I think, and particularly here in discerning when can he try to work through conflict? When, when, when should he go down and meet with these people? When do they have a legitimate thing to say about him? Or when, when is this simply a ruse to get him away from the city and put him in danger? I think this is one of the things that is important for leaders. It's, it's to be wise about the nature of conflicts, to realize that not all conflicts can simply be settled by negotiating. Not all conflicts can, can, can just be cured because we're assuming that there are people of goodwill, that sometimes we just have to, to work through. We, we just have to push against opposition. And there's no, there's no resolving. There's no easy way to take away the tension. I don't know if any of you have seen that. I thought it was a very good uh, movie with Gary Oldham called uh, um, The Darkest Hour about Churchill after the fall of Dunkirk. The, the British had sent an expeditionary force into Europe to oppose Hitler but Hitler's armies had wiped out the French army and surrounded the British at the little port of Dunkirk. And they, by a miracle, they were able to, to uh, send boats, fishing boats, sailboats, and, and, and bring the army, what was left of it, back to England. And all of, at that time, most of, of, of the leaders in England and many in Churchill's cabinet were pleading with him to negotiate a peace with Hitler. Look, we've been, the army's been devastated. We've been kicked out of Europe. Germany's unstoppable. Make a peace. Negotiate. Uh, and that was a great temptation for Churchill. But in his wisdom, unlike his predecessor, the former prime minister, Chamberlain, Churchill knew he couldn't negotiate with Hitler. That all he would be doing would be delaying the inevitable. That Hitler wasn't going to stop till he had gobbled up all of Europe. That here was a conflict that couldn't simply be resolved because there weren't two parties of goodwill. And I think that Nehemiah in his wisdom understands that some of these tensions can never be resolved. One of the reasons for that is that the opposition that we face from the outside has at its deepest roots a demonic source, doesn't it? We have an implacable enemy 
who's never going to seek for our welfare, who's never going to, to want to give us any room or quarter. The devil's desire is to destroy the work of God. The devil's desire is to destroy the, the kingdom of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be opposition in this world. Now, it, it may not have the name Satan written across it. It may come from people who are even unaware of what they're doing or why they're motivated or or what ultimate spiritual role they're, they're playing in, in, in God's history of the world. But still, many of the things in this world, the opposition of the church, are, are motivated, are instigated uh, through demonic powers. And those are, that's not going to go away. That's not going to go away. Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross, but he's still an adversary. And he'll be an adversary. He'll continue to be an adversary until the end of all things, till Jesus returns and throws him into the lake of fire forever. So there's, there's a wisdom in Nehemiah's response. He's as wise as a serpent. He knows when he can negotiate, when he can't. He knows when he has to push through opposition. He knows when he has to be strong. And he prayed for that strength. So here again, we see that, that human and that divine uh, poles, those counterparts working together as we've seen throughout the whole book. God is the one who's ultimately restoring the walls. He's the one who changed the heart of the king to send Nehemiah. He's the one who, who put it in the hearts of the people to build the wall. He's the one who's protecting them. And so Nehemiah continues to pray. I'm sure not just for himself that God would strengthen him, but that he would continue to strengthen the people in the face, in the face of opposition. This reminds me of, of what the apostles did. Remember in Acts 4, the apostles are dragged before the Sanhedrin and they're, they're beaten and they're told, we don't want you talking about this Jesus anymore. I mean, this is a pretty serious threat, right? And they go back to the, 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 the home where the, the other apostles are, the other disciples are, and they have a prayer meeting. And do you remember what they pray? In Acts 4.29, this is how they pray. They've been threatened their, their, their Lord and their Master has been crucified on a cross. They know these are not nice people, and this is how they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. This is the same response as Nehemiah, isn't it? He doesn't say, God, just get rid of those guys. Why is this, a, why is this isn't easy? Why is this so hard? Would you just take away all the problems. He says, Lord, give me strength to push on. And in the same way, the apostle said, we see their threats. Lord, we know that you're sovereign over history. Our response is give us strength. Give us boldness to speak clearly about Jesus. So that's Nehemiah's response. But I also want you to see now that there's opposition, not just from without, but there's opposition from within. And that's the surprising one. And I think that's always surprising to us. We see in uh, the next slide, well, there it is, uh, that there's opposition from within. He says in verse 10, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Daliah, the son of Mehetabal. I probably slaughtered those names, but that's okay because you don't know them any better than I do. <laughs> so we're all good here. Who was shut up in his home. This guy's hiding out in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. The temple is a place where people would flee when they were in trouble, right? 
And let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He's Jewish. He's a Jewish prophet. And he's prophesying apparently for prophet, the wrong kind of prophet, right? He's been hired. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So if they could show Nehemiah to be a, a coward, afraid, and, and would, would run off and hide in the temple, how would the others stand out in difficulty and continue to do the work if their leader is hiding, fearful of his own life in the temple? It would discredit him completely, and the work on the wall and the hanging of the gates would stop. And then he prays again, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they had done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Wow. Now that prayer about remembrance is not remember them in a nice way, God. (laughs) It's remember what they've been trying to do. Remember these enemies, protect me from them, and do something about them. Right? But I think what's surprising here, these are prophets of Israel. Later on in the chapter, we're going to find out that some of the leaders in the, in, in the Jerusalem and its environs have been intermarrying with these people, had been apparently uh, receiving benefits from these people. They were telling um, Sambalat and Tobiah about things that Nehemiah was doing. They were spying on him and, and, and sharing that news, and they were bringing back reports Uh, false reports about the the motives and the character of Nehemiah's enemies. He had enemies embedded, he had opposition embedded within his own people. I think that's the most discouraging. That's the hardest to face. And it surprises us and it discourages us. Now, you've experienced that. You've experienced being on a team, and yet somehow those on the team are undermining you. They're opposing you. Now, in, 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 in the everyday life in which people don't know Christ, that's a common occurrence. It's probably expected. If you're in business, you're, you're wise to watch your back, so to speak. But when it happens in the church, when it happens in the things of God, it's incredibly discouraging. You know. And so we can face opposition when we're trying to do good things from within. Now, some people will do it out of bad motives, but often people aren't doing it out of bad motives. Often they're actually people of goodwill, but they just see the world very differently from us. Or for some reasons, from their background or their experience, they, 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 they have fears about if, if, if this thing happens or we attain this position, that somehow it will devalue them, they won't be considered valuable, that or that this just isn't the way they want things to be done. They're not necessarily consciously acting out of evil motives, but they do form a type of opposition. And so we see conflict in churches. That's a standard truth about the church all around the world. There's conflict in churches. People don't agree. And it, and it can discourage us. It can weaken our hands. But now here's the most surprising thing of all, is that sometimes that opposition not only comes within our group, but it comes from 
within us. <laughs> Sometimes we're the very source of opposition and conflict, not even realizing it, thinking that what we're doing is really for the best or for the good, but rather through pride or often fear. We, we, we wind up being in conflict with people even when we're trying to do good, even when we're trying to do things in the church. And instead of working through that conflict, now I hear the wisdom is that, that these are people of goodwill. We need to step back. We need to humble ourselves. We need to say, okay, I need to listen carefully. That's what James says, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak. He says that the wisdom that, that comes down from above is first of all peaceable. It's a wisdom that brings peace. And so when we experience conflict within the church, which we will, I think the first place we have to ask, is it from within me? What do I bring to this conflict? What is the source of this conflict that I might have a part in? Instead of simply demanding our way, or perhaps just as worse, running away from the conflict within the church, to allow ourselves to be surprised that it might even be me and to step back and to ask God to examine our hearts and change our hearts. And so what again, what is Nehemiah's response when he's, when he's uh, encountering opposition from within? It, it's the same. There's wisdom. There's courage. He's not going to run and hide in the temple. He's, he's a leader of courage. He prays that God would, would remember what's happening to him and these people, and that God would fight his battles for him. He's not going to take vengeance into his own hands. And what does he do? He finishes the wall. He finishes the wall not in the absence of opposition or difficulty, not in the absence of people from the outside or even demonic forces trying to stop what he's doing. And believe me, the devil has never liked God's program through the nation of Israel and now his church. He doesn't stop just because there's, there's a surprising conflict and, and opposition from within his own people, prophets of God opposing him. But he pushes on and he continues. And because he pushes on and continues, the wall is finished. And then look what happens to his enemies. Look at their response to this. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done by the help of our God. So they were trying to weaken in his hands to discourage him, and actually the exact opposite happens, because the people of God continue to push through this opposition. They trust God, they pray to God, and their enemies lose self-confidence. They lose their strength. They're weakened. So what, what's the advice we can get from chapter 6? Well, it's this, that difficulty and opposition are part of the environment in which God works. That's just simply a truth. It goes all the way through Scripture. Everything that God does through Scripture with His people is done in the middle of a terrible mess. <laughs> it's never tidy. It's never easy. It doesn't matter. When, when, when He's calling His people out of Egypt, all they do is rebel it says, 10 times you rebelled against me in the wilderness. He sets them up with a wonderful king, and all they do is resort to idols until finally he has to throw them out of the land. The disciples are, are, are following Jesus, but the first thing they do is they just hunker down in the city of Jerusalem, and he has to scatter them through 
through persecution. And they continue to face that persecution everywhere they go throughout the Roman Empire. God's kingdom is always advanced through difficulty and opposition. That's because of the very, one of the beginning facts of the Bible is that the fall is real. It continues to be real. It's not a mistake that God cursed the world. And I know I've said this before in the past, that it's not like today he woke up and said, oh my gosh, what did I do? You know, I cursed the world. What a mistake. No, it was he, who, he was the one who subjected all of creation to futility. He's the one who gave us the consequences of the fall, which means that there'll be difficulty and opposition, that, that the ground's not going to produce things easily. There's going to be weeds and, and thorns, and that relationships aren't going to be easy. There's going to be conflict. He, he allowed that, or he actually caused that to happen so that we would continue to feel our deepest need for God that we would continue to reach out to find God. Like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, so that we would, we would have this deep feeling that eternity has been hidden within our hearts, that there'd be this infinite longing that we couldn't substitute the successes of mankind, our own programs, to hide from that. But the fall causes us to see that no matter what we do, how wise or great or strong we are, it fails. We desperately need God. The fall, even though it's a curse, is in that same moment as an act of grace, an act of mercy, because it continues to pull us towards God. Our need draws us to God. And then when we come to him, actually he continues to use it. It's not going to last forever. There's a day coming when he's going to remove all sin and evil. He's going to wipe away every tear. And they're going to be with him forever. But during this time, this in-between time, this difficulty creates the context for faith. God uses it to build and mold and shape and increase our faith. So difficulty allows you to say, I trust you, Jesus, in this. If there was never difficulty, when would you say that? Right? But when you face difficulty, it gives us that choice to to trust or to turn away. And that builds our faith when we trust. And then it creates this context for us to grow in these, in these great characteristics. We're not going to take any of our, of, our, of our material possessions into the next life, but we are going to take who and what we've become, our characteristics, our virtues, our values. We're building now what, what, what we're going to be forever, what God's going to reward forever. It's worthwhile to invest today. The outward physical manifestation of it may get wiped out, but the inward character, faith characteristics, those last forever. And difficulty gives us that opportunity to grow in wisdom and courage and perseverance. And not only that, but when we, when we act that way and we begin to, 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 to grow in those characteristics like Nehemiah and actually like our Lord Jesus Christ, everything he did was in the face of opposition if you'll remember the, the, the story of the Gospels at all. But when we begin to grow in those characteristics, it becomes an incredibly powerful thing in the lives of others. Let me tell you a quick story. You know, I was on Campus Crusade staff. That's how old I am. It was Campus Crusade back then, not crew. And I worked at Boston College. Boston College, you know, has a football team. And, and uh, one of their players uh, was in our, our campus group had become a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And he had been a starter on, on the defensive side of, of the football team for several years. And his senior year, they tried to switch him over to offensive line, and it just didn't work. And he came into practice one day. You know, their, their colors are sort of like Florida States, that maroon and, and gold. And those who are on the practice squad, you're not even going to travel, they wear a green jersey. And he came into the locker room one day, and he, he opened his locker, and there was a green jersey. Now, he's a senior. He's been starting in the past. And, and everybody in the locker room saw it and just went, went quiet. And they just looked at Brian. And Brian pulls out this green jersey, and he holds it up, and he says, What do you know? I've been traded to the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> There was really an outstanding running back who had a locker next to him who wound up playing Canadian football. And he looked at Brian and he said, how can you do that? How can you be that way? And he said, I, I want you to tell me more about your God. That is the truth. And Brian got to tell him about Jesus because of his response to opposition and difficulty. He wasn't... He wasn't wiped out by it. It wasn't that his expect expectations were such that he, he thought, oh, I'll never have difficulty, that life will be smooth and easy. He, he knew the context of the gospel, that it came through difficulty. And then when difficulty occurred, he had the, the, the characteristics and the strength to say, this is from God's hand. This is given to me by God for my good and the good of others. So we're able to face opposition and difficulty and not fold under it, not to grow weak and discouraged under it, but understand that God is still sovereign and he expects me to push through it wisely, negotiating, taking away when I can, but still pushing through when I can't and relying upon him by faith and in prayer. He does powerful things through us. So we should expect difficulty and opposition as part of our Christian life. And because we're experiencing that here right now, and one hope, things that we, we didn't expect or we didn't, didn't particularly want, this is the context in which God will show himself to be incredibly powerful. It is in our weakness that God shows his strength. So Paul says, I would rather glory in his weakness than in my strength. So that's where we are. That's the wisdom from Nehemiah. Will we choose together as a family one hope to glory in our weakness so that God's strength might be glorified in a powerful way throughout our community? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this life and work of Nehemiah. And Lord, that is a question. We face it so many times in our lives when we face discouragement, particularly when we, we really aren't expecting it. Lord, this is the question. Will we, would we rather glory in our weakness so that your strength might be magnified? Lord, as this church, have you brought us to this place to show yourself powerful? Lord, would you show us that in the weeks to come? Would, would you give us the wisdom, the shrewdness of Nehemiah and the, and, and the faithfulness to pray and to trust you? Lord, as we see you restore one Hope Church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com. 